You know what the most dangerous thing in America is, right? Nigga with a library card. <laughs> This is the Most Dangerous Thing in America podcast, a show in which we read books by black authors and they're talked about by a black author, and you can listen if you are black or not black. This week on the podcast, doing something a little bit different. So I said that I would read the last two chapters of Fred Moten's In the Break last week, and that was a lie, because once I got to the second chapter, which is In the Break... I realized this is way too dense to read in, uh, to read it, and then the third chapter, which is Visible Music, and then a fourth, like, coda, which is called Resistance of the Object, way too much for one podcast, absolutely impossible, not going to happen. So what we're going to do is, I'm going to record two to three different podcasts and just release them all at the same time. So, uh, this is, this episode is just in the break, but the other episodes are coming out at the exact same time, so you can listen to it all at once. So technically, I didn't lie. Everything will be coming out at the time I said it was going to come out. It's just not all coming out as one podcast because there's way too much stuff to get to. Uh, that being said, going to try to keep this as short as possible because the fact of the matter is, here's why this took so long, okay? Just as a little bit of, of an aside. I read chapter two. To understand chapter two, he, he mentions uh, Wittgenstein a lot. I'd read enough Wittgenstein or at least was familiar enough. I don't want to make it sound like I'm sitting here reading Uh, dead German philosophers all day, but I'm familiar enough with his work to be like, okay, that's fine. And then he mentioned uh, Charles Sanders Peirce, and I was like, oh, okay, no idea who that is. Um, And turns out he was was, uh, one of the first people to develop uh, semiotics, which again, just kind of vaguely familiar with. So I was like, all right, let me go actually read that. So I read that. And chapter two deals a lot with Amiri Bakara, whose work I like, uh, wait, is it Amiri Bakara or Amiri... Baraka. Amiri Baraka. Yeah, Amiri Baraka. Um, okay, I can't sit here and say that I was that familiar with Amiri Baraka if I'm saying his name correctly, incorrectly, but actually I was. I'd read Amiri Baraka before, but not any of the pieces that he mentioned. So, read the C.S. Sanders piece, read multiple Baraka pieces, then there's tons of music mentioned, had to listen to those pieces and, you know, whatever, just kind of at least get familiar with those. And then uh, a piece by Nathaniel Mackey, was mentioned, so I went and read that, and then there were at least two other, oh, uh, there's a sonnet by Shakespeare, and then a sonnet by a 16th century writer, who's obviously not Shakespeare, and then there was two other things that I looked up and couldn't get my hands on, so really, a lot of extra reading, you know, we've all read books that are footnoted, but usually, you kind of just, you know, if you're actually super interested in the thing, you go look at the footnote and then go buy the book that was footnoted. You don't typically have to go and read something just to understand what's happening. So let that be a critique before we even get started. Okay, but let's get started and discuss exactly what the second chapter in the break is about. So I'll go through some general ideas, then I'll break down each section in the chapter and hopefully you'll kind of understand why the podcast had to be th- four parts or three parts. I haven't really decided yet. I'm, I'm betting four. I don't, I don't really think this is going to be possible to do in three parts because I bet the coda is as confusing as everything else in this book. 
Uh, okay, so the general ideas here. I'm going to start with just a quote which happens in the first section of chapter 2, straight from the book. Uh, Moton says, Part of what I'd like to get to is whatever generative forces there are in the asymptotic, syncopated, non-convergence of event, text, and tradition. That convergence emerges in and as a certain glancing confrontation of Africa, Europe, and America, of outness, labor, and sentiment that is both before and a part of the material preface to the theoretical and practical formulation of a black public sphere. I mean... There's a lot there, so let's just try to break it down like this. Basically, getting down to the generative forces of what is uh, not... Getting down to the generative forces of the cracks in between things. So, this, this work mentions a lot of these words. Cut, break, sexual cut, cesura, anacrusis, syncopation, montage... All of these things were the idea, syncopation not as much, but all of these, th all of these uh, words were the idea is a, a, a gap in between something, right? A gap in between something or else something being inverted. So that's where syncopation would come back in. So he's trying to get at the idea of this gap in between stuff. And we kind of talked about that last episode too, but here obviously in the chapter called In the Break, that idea is even more at the forefront okay so then i would say probably the best big idea that comes out of this entire chapter is the shortcomings of language and that's something like a refrain throughout the chapter but kind of falls away at the end but that's at least the part that i found the most interesting all right so that's kind of the big general overview it's not that good of a general overview because it's hard to be general with, with this book. All right, so then the first section of the book is called Tragedy, the first section of chapter two is called Tragedy and Elegy. And so this is when we, so immediately Amiri Baraka is mentioned and it's kind of, he's going to be the, the, the mode that we use to understand uh, this idea of, you know, in the break. And the way he's going to be used is because he was a he's, he was a radical artist, and kind of Moten suggests that he rewrote the ideas of being and blackness and um, how to express those things in the same way that Cedric Robinson, who wrote the book Black Marxism, rewrote Marxism. So that's kind of why Baraka is chosen. Okay, so that's he establishes that idea, and then from there we just jump away from Baraka, and we go right into Wittgenstein. And <laughs> it's kind of an abrupt leap, you know, you might, there's a lot of these things happening in this chapter, but there's a lot of times where you're kind of like, yeah, I don't know if I see the Baraka-Wittgenstein connection, but okay, let's go with it. So he jumps into Wittgenstein, and it's Wittgenstein talking about music and how music is written down uh, in symphonies, and then people read it and then play it. And then also you could reconstruct, like you could listen to a phonograph and then write down the music. You could do that, but both things are different from each other. But there's a rule that connects them. But that's all the reason. That's all the connection they have is that rule. Without the establishment of the rule, there's actually nothing connecting those two things whatsoever. So that gets us to the original idea of the separation of the mediums. And if you go back to that original uh, quote that Moten had at the beginning, the generative forces that are in the 
asymptotic syncopated non-convergence of event, text, and tradition. So that at least is event and text, right? Writing down music and then playing the music. Tradition maybe doesn't come in in that exact example, but that's what Moten's trying to get at. So he's going to do a lot of these examples. So that's his first thing with Wittgenstein is uh, basically there's the separation between what is on the page, what is experienced by the ears, etc. Okay, that leads us pretty nicely into Charles Sanders Pierce. And I should stress, Wittgenstein's quoted at length, and uh, everything that he says in the piece or in Moten's chapter is really clear and well, like, thought out and written out. I really just got to, you know, stress that Moten's style in this book is really hard to understand and not clear. And just like in part one, I had to go through and reread part two over and over again. And part of the reasons I read so much footnoted material was because the footnotes are clear. So when he mentions Charles Sanders Pierce, he just kind of like, as an aside, mentions the idea of icon. And that's fine. I mean, he, he, you know, obviously this book is written for people who have done more study than I have. At the same time, I feel like there's a way to define these things relatively quickly in the text without, or in a footnote, without just footnoting me to the actual work. But that's fine. I went to the footnoted work, which was written a hundred years before in the break, and somehow felt more, felt easier to read, to get a grasp around. But basically, as a complete tangent now, because that's what happened to me, I read the Charles Sanders Pierce's, I read a piece of Charles Sanders Pierce's um, collected writings about icons, indices, and symbols. And here is a very bad breakdown of what these things are. So as I, the basic idea is that icons look like a thing, indices indicate a thing, and symbols are the least, so all three of these things are signs, symbols are the sign that has the least to do with the thing that it's representing. And if that's confusing, here are two passages that I think really explain very well what Pierce means, okay? So this first passage is explaining the difference between an icon and an index. A yardstick might seem at first sight to be an icon of a yard, and so it would be if it were merely intended to show a yard as near as it can be seen and estimated to be a yard. But the very purpose of a yardstick is to show a yard nearer than it can be estimated by its appearance. This it does in consequence of an accurate mechanical comparison made with the bar in London called the yard. You know, where they have the standard things, where you know what I'm talking about? The standard, you know, like, if you've ever wondered how do they calibrate measurements, there's a, there's a place locked up with the calibrated measurements. Anyway. Thus, it is a real connection which gives the yardstick its value as a representamen. I'm assuming that's Latin, but I couldn't actually find a reference to it as Latin. I think it may have just been a Pierce word. Um, and thus, it is an index, not a mere icon. So a yardstick is an index because it indicates more accurately what a yard is than an actual icon would, which would just be to say, eh, it's about a yard. Um, it represents a yard, whereas the index indicates more accurately what a yard is. So then that leaves us with the question of, well, what is a symbol? If that's, we've got, all right, so we've got index and icon down as well as we're going to get them down for now. Let's get to the symbol. The best example of this, and this ties back into Moten and Wittgenstein, uh, as, as Moten is quoting him very well. He says, We speak of writing or pronouncing the word man, but it is only a replica or embodiment of the word. That is pronounced or written. The word itself has no existence, although it has a real being consisting in the fact that it 
existence will conform to it. It is a general mode of succession of three sounds or representations of sounds, which becomes a sign only in the fact that a habit or acquired law will cause replicas of it to be interpreted as meaning a man or men. So the symbol is completely nothing to do with the thing that it actually represents other than we've created a law that says, here you go. Um, also, Charles Sanders Pierce, awesome, an American philosopher and a mathematician, has some great quotes on math. He's getting a tangent here because you should go read Charles Sanders Pierce. So, end of tangent. Back into Moton. So, we've established now these things, all right? These things to be true, that there is a separation between what things mean and the signs that uh, represent them. Okay. And then, ultimately, Moton's point that is that between... That there is a cut, and he likes this word cut quite a bit, through the cut, and this is him now, uh, something slips through the cut of expression and meaning, okay, and that's the break, the cut, the caesura, the anacrusis, that's the idea, all right, and he uses Wittgenstein and Pierce to establish that, then we go back to Baraka, uh, so we're finally back at Baraka, and we get the poem Black Dada Nihilismus, which is actually really awesome. And listening to it performed is actually really good. And Moten's basic point can be summed up in one sentence. I mean, that's a real exaggeration, but we're going to sum it up in one sentence. Which is, is the entirety of the poem, Black Dada Nihilismus, ever present to us in any of its manifestations? Because you can read it, or you can hear Amiri Baraka perform it, and is it actually ever... You know, can you grasp that meaning and where is that meaning and in what break or what cut does that meaning exist? And then also, what are the aesthetic, what are the aesthetics specifically of that meaning? Because remember, all of this has to do with specifically the black radical tradition and its aesthetics as Baraka has embodied them and exemplified them. That's the first section of the first chapter. So you can see that was quite a bit of stuff. All right. Second section is called The Dark Lady and the Sexual Cut. So the idea of sexual cut I find confusing. Uh, I've obviously done the work here and can't really wrap my head around what is meant by sexual cut too much. I mean, it's not completely true that I can't wrap my head around it. I just, the connection doesn't seem to be as clear to me as the other cuts that are mentioned. But so anyway, at one point earlier in section one, he says about the sexual cut, it is our access to, quote-unquote, the sexual cut, that insistent previousness evading each and every natal occasion, which he actually mentioned in the first chapter. So that was in the, that quote just now is from the first section of chapter two, but in chapter one, he mentions about the idea of the previousness evading each and every natal occasion, the event before the event, etc., etc. So that is the sexual cut. Here in this section, which is called The Dark Lady and the Sexual Cut, the Dark Lady has a couple of different meanings, but basically to tie this section all together and to try to do it quicker than I did with the last section. This section discusses Billie Holiday. She is the dark lady. Another dark lady that appears is in Shakespeare's 129th sonnet, which I will not read because uh, I wouldn't do it justice. I mean, you really have to you really have to understand the cadence of Shakespeare, which we'll get into in just one second. So Billie Holiday is the dark lady. Shakespeare's 129th sonnet is the Dark Lady, and then uh, Amiri Baraka had written a piece called The Dark Lady of the Sonnets. So there you go. There's the connection. 
And the thing that we do here is that we go through Billie Holiday's work and we're given some songs like Don't Explain and other songs. And then we're also given quotes about people saying that her voice stretched out past the normal confines of what a voice could do, expressing something beyond words, something unexplainable, something that was more than linguistic meaning of words. And uh, there was a really great quote that I can't find right now, but basically the idea was Billie Holiday, so, so, you know, just like the last section of the last chapter, chapter two, what he does is he starts out with establishing Billie Holiday is going to be the subject of this piece. Then he hops into Shakespeare for a long conversation and talks about how Shakespeare wrote and rewrote sonnets and, you know, he, he broke the frame. He liked to use that word, uh, Moten did, frame. Great artists just breaking the frame and Shakespeare just blew the frames off the sonnet. After he got done with the sonnet, the sonnet wasn't the sonnet anymore. The sonnet was the sonnet as Shakespeare had defined the sonnet. Actually, an interesting piece as an aside. When he does this, he actually quotes a different sonnet uh, in the work, Moten does. And it's by uh, Philip Sidney. So that was the person I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. Astrophil and Stella. I can't remember the name, or excuse me, the number of the sonnet, but it is great. Uh, it is awesome. So I'm going to buy that book and read all of those sonnets from the 16th century because that one sonnet was absolutely amazing. And yeah, Shakespeare's 129 is also absolutely amazing. Now I sound like the, the cat from uh, Clockwork Orange. Ludwig's glorious number nine. Okay, anyway. So he goes through all of that and he establishes Shakespeare's just breaking the frame, you know, reinventing poetry on the fly. And then also how Billie Holiday did that too, and her, uh, her, her contributions to like sonic, not just music, it's, it's sound is, is, is his point. There's something beyond music, beyond words, just voice. Her contributions to that is, anal- is, analog- is, analog- is the same as Shakespeare's contributions to poetry. And then to tie it back into Baraka, because remember, Baraka, he's, he figures throughout, he figures throughout. Uh, how does he tie in? Well, one, he wrote that piece, but also that voice seeping into Baraka is how is how he became inspired. So at the end of the piece, he writes um, something along the lines of holiday, holiday, you know, showed Baraka rapture in his mind. How long can it last? Like how long can that continue to to come out into his own work? So that was really great and interesting. And yeah. So that's part two. I told you, there's a lot of stuff here. Part three is the German inversion. And it, here's where we start to slow down. Not because, well, this part in particular is really interesting. It's just pretty dense. And actually, I do think of all the parts that you could summarize pretty easily, this is the one, even though it's dense. And maybe it's because I actually am more familiar with this person that he references. He references Heidegger. And uh, yeah, so like Wittgenstein and Heidegger were both relatively, I'm relatively familiar with them because at least in college, you know, when we were smoking cigarettes and pretending to be intellectuals, we would kick their names around. Never kicked your own Pierce's name, but Heidegger, Wittgenstein, that got you some points at the uh, cigarette table. So at least, you know, vaguely familiar with the idea of these guys. So this section talks about Baraka and Heidegger and how they're related. And this is more of a direct comparison than the Wittgenstein thing earlier, right? So that one's more of a monkey rich where we just mention Brock and then we just hop into Wittgenstein. Whereas here, 
it, from the get-go, he actually does this thing where he intersplices writings by Heidegger and Baraka. And so the piece that he uses from Baraka is the Burton Green Affair. And at the beginning of that piece, Baraka talks about what it is, he talks about being, and he talks about what it is to be alive and soul and what is your soul and what's at the core of you and all of that, this essential idea, this conception of being. Heidegger, famously, was obsessed with that. It was mainly what he wrote about. had a whole concept about it. What was that thing called? Desain. So that was one of his things, you know. So Moten does this thing where he does one paragraph, then another paragraph, then four times of Brock and Heidegger. And a lot of it is really, really similar. And he also points out that they're... So then he later... And I don't use this film school word that we used all the time, but let's go ahead and do it. He juxtaposes the idea of Heidegger wanting to define being and the highest being. And Baraka also wanted to do that, although he didn't explicitly say so, but that was what he was after. He, Him wanting to do it through the idea of blackness and being and the highest type of being in music, because that's what he was writing about in the Burton Green Affair. So... He contrasts and compares these two people. He juxtaposes them, whatever you want to say. If you would like just one more example of, you know, this being a pretty good mashup here, he quotes Heidegger saying, only a God can save us. The only possibility available to us is that by thinking and poetizing, we prepare a readiness for the appearance of a God. Da, 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 da. At the end of Black Dada Nihilismus, um, Baraka calls on, you know, people, I'm assuming black people, because that's where he was at at the time. <laughs> I think that's where he continued to be, uh, to be, to be saved by a God. So that was another similarity. But so, okay, so Heidegger and Baraka and being obsessed with being and being obsessed with highest being and being obsessed with what it means to be alive and Heidegger being obsessed with European man and Baraka being obsessed with black man and what it means to be black and how black is a person. And that's where we get to the Burton Green Affair, which was the piece that Moten was quoting. And what is the Burton Green Affair about? And I did go and read this whole piece. It's actually a pretty interesting piece. It's basically about this guy, Burton Green, who's white, playing jazz music, which Baraka, I believe, is of the opinion is black music. And I'm of that opinion, too. Not that white people can't play jazz, but that most of the jazz I like is in the African-American tradition of jazz. So let's say that. I like African-American jazz, but... I like jazz played by plenty of white musicians as well. I think that Brock's opinion would go beyond that. Uh, somewhere more black nationalist than Stanley Crouch would be. Although I think Stanley Crouch definitely liked black jazz musicians more than any other type of jazz musician. I think Baraka probably only thought that uh, jazz can be jazz if it's played by a black musician. To wit, this piece in which he basically just makes fun of Burton Green for not being able to get to the core of the music, which was being played by Pharaoh Sanders, who I was familiar with, and someone else who was in this Brian in this Burton Green trio. Burton Green not being able to get to where Pharaoh Sanders was getting to where the other musician was getting, and Burton Green kind of hitting the piano not hidden it in frustration, but hidden it like trying to, you know, like sweating it out, sitting there, sweat pouring down his brow, hitting his elbow onto the piano, just trying to beat 
out of the machine this thing that was freely available for Pharaoh Sanders, who was connected to a spirituality, and I'm using Baraka's words here, all of this idea and this basically getting to this concept of what it takes to play great jazz music is to be connected to a spirituality. And I think, you know, reading the piece that Baraka's basic idea is that that spirituality is some some form of essential blackness. I'll just go ahead and say I'm not comfortable with that idea. Seems uh, weird. I mean, not like I said, I like African-American jazz music and I like uh, the tradition of black jazz musicians. I enjoy that idea. What I don't like about that concept is that it seems a little bit too close to the magical Negro idea, right? It just seems a little bit too close to that idea. And there's a lot of that with Baraka where it's teetering on the edge of like, the black man has like a closer tie to the earth or something, more rhythms of the planet or like uh, my soul is beaten with the, with the, with the tides. As the tides change and come in and come out, my soul feels that. My soul may feel that. I don't know if it has none, anything to do with being black. And uh, I got I think that Moten was like not down for that and kind of critiquing it, but I'm not particularly sure. Not that I'm not sure in the sense that like Moten would, would approve of that. I'm just not sure of Moten's stance because the way he writes is so confusing. <laughs> Sitting there like, hmm, does Moten not agree with Baraka or does he not even care about that because that's not really the aim of of his piece? But. I at least found myself being like, yeah, I don't love this. I don't love the way this is termed. Now, I would like to pivot into something that I did absolutely love with only very slight reservations, and that was Nathaniel Mackey, who's referenced in this section, or maybe the section before, who wrote a great, so he's a professor at Duke University, and he wrote a piece, an essay called Cante Moro, and it is absolutely fantastic. Uh, I'll put a link to it in the um, show notes, but like, it, it's fantastic. It's everything that like, it's not everything, but it's a lot of what Moden is saying. It's just so much clearer. So Nathaniel Mackey is a he's he's black. He's a poet. He's a professor at uh, Duke University. So you know, a lot like Moden. I think Moden might even be at Duke University. I don't know. But so basically, this piece is all about Duende and Garcia Lorca. It's just about the idea of Lorca's influence on American poetry, the concept of Duende and dark sounds, the concept of Andalusian rhythms and their influence into Spanish sounds, and then the idea of black American music and its dark sounds and its, uh, not just black American, but black New World in general, but the idea of black new world music and its ability to work past a voice, kind of what we were talking with Billie Holiday. And and the whole piece is just really good, references a lot of music. It's actually a speech he was given or a lecture he was given. So he plays music. So he's got a little mixtape at the end that's awesome. And yeah, I mean, this was like the best thing I read in this entire chapter was this footnoted piece that was Nathaniel Mackey. I don't know what made me, like the Pierce one, I read that footnoted thing because I was like, okay, I really need to go understand what he's talking about. Because it really was like a one-off reference to, you know, indices or icons or something. With the Mackey thing, there was something that was said, I think it was a quote about how 
Duende has dark sounds. All that has dark sounds has Duende. I think that Moten quotes that line. And I was like, oh, that's nice. I like that. And that's actually not Mackie. That's Mackie quoting somebody else. He's quoting a... Oh, he's quoting Lorca. So there you go. And it's Lorca's essay on Duende. But anyway, that piece is fantastic. goes all through the idea of dark sounds and then American poets who were inspired by Lorca and Lorca being inspired by black Americans and his uh, crossover, not crossover, but kind of like, you know, he, he had a little bit of a um, correspondence with the Harlem Renaissance and all of that stuff. And then, you know, he talks about Bob Kaufman, who was a beat poet who I always wanted to read and couldn't get a hold of his book in college for some reason. And he actually talks about Baraka too, Amiri Baraka. So yeah, the Mackie piece, really, really good. And you should go look that up and read it. And yeah, um, I said I had a tiny reservation about it, but I can't remember what that reservation was because I thought that the way Mackie discussed it was made more sense than like the way Baraka was was saying that you know, the way Baraka wrote that Burton Green affair thing feels yeah like bordering on the magical Negro idea, and I I didn't get that from Mackie at all. It's just there's dark sounds. Oh, the slight reservation was the fact that Lorca, I, I don't know enough about Gabriel Garcia Lorca, so I want to look him up because he seems to have like an obsession with um, gypsies and black folks and all of that. And so, you know, kind of wonder, is this like some kind of hipsterdom or fetishization or I don't want to use the word. What's that word? I don't want to use the A word. What is it? Uh, acclimation? No. What is it? Appropriation. I hate that word. Um, but like, you know, uh, I would want to read his poetry and his essays, which I you know, probably should have done before this, and then kind of make the, the decision for myself, which is what I think everybody should do with any of these appropriation charges. Just go read the thing that the person has appropriated, and if you read it and it feels like they haven't appropriated or, you know what I mean, like they did justice to it, I'd be fine with that. It's just that most of the people who appropriate things, not most of the people, but a good number of people, let's say the majority, let's go with most, a lot of the people, whatever, a good chunk of the people <laughs> appropriating things, the thing they appropriate and then use after sucks, that's the thing, it sucks, and they don't do it justice, and they don't really study it, and Lorca didn't seem like that, it seemed like he really was into it, and really studied it, and really, I guess also the big, the other big thing is gave credit, you know, knows where it came from, so that's cool too, and uh, it's not like, I mean, he wasn't and this is the thing, I don't know enough about Lorca. Like, I don't know, was he from gypsy blood? I, I don't think we're supposed to say that word now. From Romani blood? Uh, the piece says gypsy, so that's why I'm saying it. If uh, It's a quote. It is a quote. All right. So anyway, that's what that third section is basically about. More or less, the idea that Heidegger and Baraka have this uh, obsession with being, and they are defining it. They're kind of representatives of their race, if you will, and Brock is defining it this way, and Heidegger is defining it that way, and both of them are trying to answer the same question, and uh, I preferred Mackey's essay to either Brock, Heidegger, or Moten in that section. Not that they're all talking about the exact same thing, because ultimately what Moten is trying to get at is the break, the cut. But he finishes off this section with the idea that with the idea of the five spot. So the last section is called Round the Five Spot, the fourth section of chapter two. And it's all about how the New York scene was... So there was the five spot 
jazz club where like Monk played and Billie Holiday sang. And there was a ton of avant-garde art around that area. And he names a bunch of avant-garde artists who are around that area. And also talks a lot about the, uh, the, the openness of sexuality in that area and how all these things were happening in the same area. And this is one of his contentions from earlier in the book, if you remember, and that was the idea was that you can't have the avant-garde without black people. And anybody who mentions the avant-garde and doesn't mention black people is, it's, and this has become a, I just don't like words that are buzzwords, but whatever. This has become a buzzword, but it is erasure, and I 100% agree with Moten. One of the things I like most about Moten is his assertion that black people are weird, but in like the good weird because I always felt like one of the things about being black, especially since basically, let's say, the crack era has been, but it's probably always been this way, but the crack era is my life and feels very much more like this, at least in my conception of things, that since that era, it's really been like, oh, black people are like this. So if you are a black person who is eccentric or nerdy, uh, then, you know, you're automatically, automatically told that you're not black. But on top of that, there's, it's not, it's not just that other people put you into a box. It's also that other identities are shut off from you. And this is true for a lot of people from all different kinds of uh, backgrounds. I think that something happened where we started shuffling people into archetypes even more than we did before. Like you see it with things like, um, John Hughes in 1980s movies where like, Suddenly you're a jock, you're a nerd, you're a pretty girl, you're a rich kid, you're a snob. And that's that happened, that exploded post-1980. Uh, maybe it's because of all the different TV that was on and the, the, uh, the, the ramp up of marketing and just mass media in general. And yeah, in the black community that same thing has happened where, uh, to use the Keen Pill line and the title of something I once wrote, we are not monoliths. Uh, that doesn't mean that I'm a red sweater wearing Republican, but it does mean that, you know, we should be able to like be weird. And Moton's whole point is we don't have to try to be able to, we just are. It's essential to the avant-garde and that's essential to black life. And that radicalism has always been there. And that, that I 100% agree with and am for and appreciate in this in this work. So, there you go. There's our concise summary of this. You can see why this thing can be one podcast. There's just no way. The hubris, the hubris on my part to think I could do it in two podcasts. Um, but I've been humbled by Moten, who really, I, the ideas in the book are awesome. It's really cool to engage work that is this difficult because you know, you're actually thinking. Uh, I think a lot of reading now is like, oh, just read what you enjoy, which is true. Read what you enjoy, but it's wonderful to challenge yourself. You know, just like if you go to the gym, if you continue to do the same workout for six months without changing anything, you're actually going to end up being weaker. You know, you have to push your limits. So this is a book that is pushing my limits for sure. I will say that I think it's a bad sign that when I'm reading Wittgenstein, C.S. Pierce, Heidegger, Nathaniel Mackey, that I'm like, oh, thank God, I'm not like insane. I can actually understand these things. Because that means that this Moten writing is in particular difficult. And so I, I will just say once more, and I know I've said it at least 10 times now in these two podcasts, 
it's just not that clear. And that style is just not for me. But I'm, I'm thankful to be exposed to the ideas and the other thinkers. And I do think there are moments of lucidity where Moten, that's the thing. It's, it's clear that he could easily write this thing in a different way, but he's chosen to go after this style. And I, at first I was at least giving the benefit of the doubt, the idea that this style could, you know, the, the form fits the content. But after, <laughs> after reading over half the book, I just don't see it that way at all. I don't see it that way at all. I think that my understanding of this book has come through blood, sweat, and tears of reading footnotes, every piece that he's referenced, and then going back and reading highlighted stuff twice so that it's taken me a long time to get through this book, which is fine. That's okay. Getting through a book in a long time is okay. Wrestling with ideas is okay. But the ideas aren't as difficult as the writing, so that's the problem. So that would be the writing, the reading experience of this book. But the content of it, it's, it's great. And uh, it is challenging and intellectually, uh, what should we say, satisfying, satiating. Good to, good to break off a piece of it and sit with it for a while. And I got a lot of stuff now to, to sit with, a lot of stuff from reading this that you know, I want to go and read more of. So that's, that part is nice. Okay, we got it in under 40 minutes. Man, this is a long podcast. Well, we'll see about the next one, Chapter 3. Hopefully, we don't go as long, but we'll see because uh, this is challenging work. But anyway, this is going to... So, I mean, I'm saying that. I'm literally going to record the podcast. It's going to be out at the same time, but you know, you'll be hearing it at the same time. But for me, there's work in between recording this one and the next one. So, try to keep that next one under 40. But no promises. No promises. Until next time, stay safe. Stay black and keep reading.